Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear my conversation with one of the world's foremost authorities on the African elephant, Ian Douglas Hamilton. Ian Douglas Hamilton pioneered the first in-depth scientific study of elephant social behavior in Tanzania's Lake Manyara National Park at age 23. During the 1970s, he investigated the status of elephants throughout Africa and was the first to alert the world to the ivory poaching holocaust. He and his wife have co-authored two award-winning books and have made numerous television films. In 1993, he founded Save the Elephants, a Kenyan conservation organization dedicated specifically to elephants. And in 2010, he was named the recipient of the prestigious Indianapolis Prize in recognition of his lifetime achievements. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. Ian Douglas Hamilton. Your uh, household name, at least in my household, <laughs> on, on elephants. And I'm just wondering what in the very first instance, what really attracted you to elephants? Well, really, um, I was attracted to Africa, and I wanted to do lions, but as it turned out, George Shallow was coming to do the lions, and so I got elephants in a very interesting little national park, which was in Tanzania, called Lake Manyara. And in Lake Manyara, the elephants were pushing the trees over, and the trees were the trees that the lions sat in. So people want to know why they were doing it and how. That was literally my first job after university. Once I started studying elephants, I got completely hooked on them. And especially because I used a technique that had never been done before of learning to look at them as individuals and learning to recognize them. I eventually knew about 500 and actually, I based all my study on that ability to know and recognize elephants. How do you tell the difference between the elephants? It's quite easy to tell the difference between elephants because you can look at the ear outline, and every ear has got little details on it, holes and nicks and funny shapes, and you can memorize those. And uh, actually, if you do it for a while, you can become quite expert at it and you can tell them apart just as easily as you can tell human beings apart. Do skin tones differ at all among elephants? Uh, not really. Skin tone doesn't differ very much because um, you can seldom see the skin tone because they usually have a fine coat of dust or mud on top of it. <laughs> so sometimes you get white elephants, sometimes you get red elephants, and it just depends what the soil has been where they last went. I mean, I ask partly because, um, you know, forensically, I'm always interested in what, how can you have a species-specific characteristics or an individual characteristic when you have a part separated yeah. from the elephant? So I'm, uh, and elephant skin being something that's sometimes traded. Uh, yeah, yeah, I understand. I actually think that if you're looking at skin in that detail, you could probably look at the wrinkles and get a distinct pattern. And I don't actually know how much wrinkles change over time. But it's possible that there's fixes fingerprints, in which case that would be a good way of uh, telling identity. 
In your experience, what are some of the most endearing characteristics of elephants? Well, I like elephants because of the way they treat each other. And uh, when when you get look at an elephant, it gives the impression of being a conscious being that's actually figuring things out in its environment around it, <laughs> even its relationships with you as an observer. But they're very nice to each other most of the time, and not all the time, but they are, are a species that is highly social, and they uh, reinforce each other, and they're pretty miserable if they don't have company. So um, you see a lot of play, you see a lot of um, tender, touching, caressing, tactile contact, one sort or another. They rub up against each other. They lean against each other. Sometimes they rest their head on another elephant. And you get the impression that they're just very loving, friendly creatures with each other. I think we've all heard that they're matriarchal societies. So how? what is the composition of a typical herd? Well, a typical herd might be a animal, or it might be 15 animals. Um, if it's a small uh, herd, it will be a, a mother who may be a grandmother. She might even be a great-grandmother. And she'll be accompanied by her immature offspring and her female offspring. So a female may stay with her mother most of her life, in fact. Um, and they, they have a very strong matriarchy where the eldest female is really the dominant animal who takes all the decisions. There was a... Story I was working on recently relating to the recent poaching in Chad, and there was a orphan who was rescued, nicknamed Toto by um, by SOS Elephants Chad, who helped rescue it, and then it ran away to another herd and was ultimately adopted by another mother. And they saw saw the other mother giving it milk and taking care of it. And is this common adoption of orphaned elephants? It happens, it happens, and it depends on the age a bit. If um, a baby is very young and the mother dies, the likelihood is that she will die too. If she's very lucky and she has an aunt who's very close to her mother, who's um, also got milk, then it's possible that she could be rescued by that aunt. And you see the baby running actually from one female with milk to another. So it can happen. But the rule is that your mother is the one who looks after you, and if she dies, it's quite likely if you are under the age of three that you will die too. Tell me about some of the elephants you've known. Um, you know, have there been specific elephants that have captured your heart? Oh yes, definitely. Um, and it always goes back to my earliest days of elephants when I was young myself. I was just 23 years old, and I came out and lived with these 500 elephants for a period of five years. And one of my favorites was a huge matriarch who used to come out and charge. She was a very, um, she hated cars, but it was always bluff, and it took me a long time to learn that. But she was enormously impressive. He would charge and to usually stop just short of the car or demolish a bush easily in front of you and tear it apart. And then another favorite I had was um, a female who um, 
was uh, very curious, and she used to come towards my car, and eventually um, I got so friendly with her that I could get out of the car and I could walk with her and feed her the fruit of the wild gardenia tree. So that was a very special elephant for me. Her name was Virgo. Wow. She eventually even brought her babies up to meet me. But one does have favorites over the years. And was, I mean, that seems very uncommon that you could walk with her and feed her. Yeah, I don't think most people have done that at all. In 2009, you released um, a film, The Secret Life of Elephants. What was really different with this film and what allowed you to film and follow their lives so closely? Well, I didn't think I was closer than any uh, elephant ever before because there have been a number of films made with habituated elephants where the elephants come extremely close. But certainly this was as close as they get anywhere. And um, I think... Uh, the groundbreaking thing was really um, uh, we were quite lucky to see some rare behavior and you, you always get rare behavior if you really spend the time watching elephants and in this case I think one of the incidents that interested me most was a time when um, the tempers of the elephants were fairly short because they were short of food and they got irritable and one young female of a fairly junior ranking family knocked over the calf of another high ranking female that let out a tremendous squeal and almost in slow motion the matriarch of her group and and sniffed around and gradually figured out what had happened and then moved in on the offending family. But that family had already beaten a hasty retreat. And so it looked as if they knew that one of their members had transgressed by knocking over this calf from a powerful family. And that really intrigued me to see it naturally. And it was only because we had a very good cameraman that we were able to record it. To, we were able quickly to detect the action as it happened. Huh. But I realized then that there is a subtle hierarchy between families that you occasionally see. It's usually hidden, but you do occasionally see it come out in the open. And it's probably very important for elephants that they know the place of each family relative to every other family. And and was there discipline action, disciplinary action? <laughs> well, not really, because by by the time um, the offended maker found out who'd done it, um, the offenders had kind of slipped away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but maybe she remembered, you know, they say, I can never forget, so maybe she remembered and took it out. I've heard a lot about aggression in sort of adolescent male elephants. Is that true? They're not really aggressive because they're normally held in check by their elders. Probably what you read about was a case where there were some orphaned elephants that had been, um, the parents had been killed in the cull, 
and they were taken off and transplanted to another place. And there they grew up really very badly mannered, and they started killing some rhinos in the place they were in South Africa. So um, that was interesting because that was a sort of unintended experiment that when these little elephants were deprived of their parents, um, they then actually became quite aggressive. They, they didn't have anybody to keep them in check. They actually cured that instant by bringing a big bull from outside. And as soon as the big bull was there, all these little aggressive teenage elephants, all of whom were male, calmed down. When I think of the current poaching crisis or culling or... Um, yeah. I I think of destruction of the family unit and how the social you know the social units work. So I'm curious about the impact of poaching or what you've seen as some of the impact of poaching on elephant societies. Well, what you see is depends on who gets killed by the poacher. If um, it's a leader, say it's a matriarch who actually is the data bank, who she's a memory bank for the family. If that happens, it can have very bad effects. And the elephants will wander around looking leaderless. Uh, young females may not take good decisions. They might cross the river at a long time when it's too rough for the cars, or they might not respond in time to go to place buy new food during a drought. So all of these things can happen if you lose the good years, which is why um, it is so important for them to survive and why poaching can become so much worse. Because for every big fear you destroy, you probably destroy a class at the same time that you can't look, look after properly. I know you've been studying elephants since the mid-60s, and... I'm curious, over that period, what have been some of the critical moments in elephants' history? If, if you were an elephant writing a history book. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, sometimes you go back to prehistoric times or not. Uh, because elephants in general, or proboscidians, we call them after their big nose, there used to be hundreds of different species right across the world, uh, including North America. Now, of course, there's none in North America, and only two major species, and one which might be a third species that lives in the Congo forest. So their greatest moment, you could say, was a long time ago when they were at their maximum number of species. But I think, if you're talking about more recent history, a critical moment for the elephant was um, when the slave trade and the ivory trade really got going in Africa because the two trades were totally inexorably mixed. The people off the ivory used slaves to carry the ivory off the continent. And for every slave, there'd be one or two tusks carried. Now, that surge of poaching and slaving happened in East Africa in the middle of the 19th century. And it was quite devastating for both people and elephants. In fact, um, there were huge tracts of land where there were no people left because they'd all run away from the slavers. And the elephants, likewise, their numbers were hugely reduced. 
And I said, Daddy, it was until the early game rules came in that were introduced in colonial times that they had to choose cells to recover. There's so much debate right now about making ivory and rhino yeah. horn legal in a limited way. Yeah. What do you think of that, and why? Well, I, I think it's a ridiculous idea. Um, coming right now when there's a huge surge of ivory killing going on. The current ivory trade is totally unsustainable, so why would we want to legalize it? Especially when bans have worked in the past. I think what we have to do is now to make all ivory totally illegal and not start talking about legalizing ivory. And I don't know who's actually talking about it, but... <laughs> I think it's a crazy idea. <laughs> People are saying that the 1989 CITES ban on elephant ivory didn't work. Didn't work. But they're wrong. It did. And it's only in the last three years that it's that it's um, it's uh, succumbing to pressure. But the reason for that pressure is not because ivory is illegal. The reason for that pressure is because the price of ivory is very high. And the reason the price is very high is because the demand is high, particularly in Japan. So, uh, sorry, Japan and China. So, um, I don't quite see how legalizing it would help because legalizing ivory has never helped in the past. There's absolutely no known example where a um, legal trade actually helped to protect elephants. The ban works. The ban worked beautifully. I lived through it. So I saw the elephants destroyed by a legal ivory trade. When a legal ivory trade existed, I saw elephants destroyed in East Africa in two decades, the 70s and the 80s. I then saw the ivory trade ban come in, and I saw elephants recover for nearly 20 years. It's only in the last... Okay, sure, there was poaching. I'm not saying the poaching was ever eliminated, but the question is, could the elephants um, reproduce faster than, than they died? And the answer is yes, they did. They increased in all the major populations in East Africa for nearly two decades. So it's only really since 2008 that the ivory trade ban has stopped working properly. And I don't think that it would be any better if that ban was reduced and the trade was made legal. On the contrary, it seems to be some experiments in um, letting some partial sales take place that have stimulated the demand that was dormant. I think uh, it was very unwise to tinker with the ivory trade ban when it was working. It was in 2008 that they allowed experimental sales, and it is ever since then that things have really deteriorated. I know there was a previous uh, attempt to um, have some limited sales, and it is questionable whether those led to increased illegal killing. But the difference was that in the previous experimental sale, China was not a signatory and was not permitted to be one of the ivory buyers. As soon as China became permitted, the controls that China had went to pieces. And right now, the ivory trade is... Um, it is largely illegal in China. It's supposed to be legal internal trade, but in actual fact, most of the ivory on sale in the shops in China is illegal in its origin. One last question is regarding the ivory 
burning, and I know you were at the yes. burning in, in Gabon recently. And yes. I, I'm just wondering what that meant to you and what that well, meant to you. Well, I, I take my hat off to the Gabonese. I think it's amazing. When a country burns ivory, it means that they uh, put behind them any chance of underhand dealing. So it's not like they're pretending to have a ban and then selling the ivory under the carpet, which often happens. So, and, and I think it was a very great decision. In fact, I would really like to see all the ivory available bought up um, by um, donors who give the money to governments, and then I'd like to see that ivory burnt. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And, no I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ian Douglas Hamilton, one of the world's foremost authorities on the African elephant. I'm Laurel Neme, and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening. <laughs>